0: church. Morning. Middle schoolers playing with fire during the service. That is the best thing ever. You did an awesome job. Awesome job there. A whole family did a great job. That's, that's the dream right there. You going not get a match during a church service. I mean, that's nothing better there. I'm excited. I'm your pastor, Scott, and I'm excited to be preaching this, this Sunday. Shout out to, to Pastor Mike. Um, just last week's sermon was one of the best sermons on the end times I've ever heard. And I just want to point that out. If you missed it last week, Yeah. We don't need to inflate his ego any more than I already am, okay, folks. So, so like a boo, just to, to, there it is. Okay, we just need one boo, just to kind of bring it down to earth a little bit. It's seriously one of the best sermons I've ever heard. Go back and rewatch it. Go back and rewatch it if you haven't missed it from last week. We are jumping into this the sermon series on the outsiders. And this week we're talking about joy. Now before we jump in, a couple of administrative announcements, because what's a good sermon without some administrative announcements before we start? So the first and foremost, I want to say thank you to all those who have been serving this past week. I know that Chris in his announcements did a great job outlining it. We did serving all across our city at people's houses, over at Miss Annie's. So thank you, thank you, E3 Church. Secondly, unrelated... We're going to just give a FYI that Pastor Lori is going to be going on a sabbatical, well-earned sabbaticals, interim pastor, for the first quarter of 2022. So if you see her, give her a big hug and say, you have well-earned this, and God's going to do some great stuff through this. Got it, church? All right, we're going to encourage her through that. Then thirdly, we just want to take a moment of just silence and prayer as we deal with those wrath, those uh, tornadoes that went through our country over the past weekend. And so would you just join me as we just take a moment of silence and prayer in offering our thoughts and prayers to all those families affected. Join with me together. God, as we come together, center our hearts, center our thoughts and our minds, and bring all the things we talk about into culmination to those people affected by tragedies across our country and across the world, as different people deal with different things, may we just offer up that your spirit would feel from us into all the aspects of Tallahassee and the world we enter into. It's in your name we pray, all together saying, amen. Now we get to start the sermon. Now we get to start the sermon. Talking about joy, and I want to ask this question to start out. What is joy? Now, don't answer it's just rhetorical, because most of you will say, it's a good feeling. It's Christmas time. It's, you know, something we do when we see a rainbow in the sky, and then we see the lucky charms, or whatever it is that brings you a sense of happiness. But joy, friends, is more than that. I remember as a young college student, a 19-year-old at the University of Nebraska, go Huskers. No one says that, okay? Here we go. I was a music student at the College of Music, and I was studying both trumpet and vocal performance. And I went into my opera lesson, and I was doing this German aria on love. And I remember it so clearly. I was singing, "Ich frage keine Blume, ich frage keine Stern." And my vocal professor, who was also my accompanist at that time, slams a lid on the piano. and He says, "You've never been in love." Thanks, Bill. <laughs> I had not. I was 19 years old. I mean, most 19-year-olds don't even know what shoelace goes on, which, you know shoe, or how to even do, do anything, right? You know, those of you who are older than 19 say, yeah. And if you're under 19, you're like, cool, yeah. But yeah. This idea that as a 19-year-old, I have not experienced love, and so he told me, you cannot sing this song. And we flipped to the next song in the cycle. And he was right. I couldn't comprehend love because I haven't experienced it. I couldn't sing about it. And I think many of us have this, for lack of a better word, perverted view of joy. That joy is something that's supposed to make me happy in the moment I'm in, while the biblical text says something entirely different. C.S. Lewis, in his famous autobiography, Surprised by Joy, tells the experience of otherworldly joy, a specific joy that defies our modern understanding, and he links it to certain moments in his life. Early on in the autobiography, he was playing with the toy train. Another time, he felt this feeling while he was viewing a, a vista. And it's interesting enough that C.S. Lewis, one of the great authors, just completely abandons the idea of joy through his autobiography, only to kind of trivially talk about it at the end, saying that he pursues Jesus... Versus pursuing joy. Now, I want to unpack this this morning. Not that C.S. Lewis is wrong, but I think joy is much more worthy of our pursuit in the full sense of the word and full understanding. And I believe all of us should pursue joy in our lives as we understand it through the biblical text. As we get into this sermon series on Mark on the Outsiders, we've been going through week by week looking at chapters and understanding that Jesus preaches to outsiders and makes them realize that they're not outsiders at all. They're insiders in his kingdom. Meanwhile, the people who assume they're the insiders, those Pharisees, those Sadducees, those teachers of the law, are shown to be the outsiders. He reorients the entire biblical narrative. As we jump into chapter 14, you get your Bible, your Bible apps ready. Chapter 14 Jesus is in his final hours before death. He knows his death is coming. He's announced it three other times in the gospel, maybe more. And if I knew I was in my last hours of life, I probably would choose to do some very meaningful things, right? I would choose to do that bucket list. I'd be jumping out of planes. No, I wouldn't. But I would do things that would be fun. I'd go call my relatives who I want to talk to for the last time. I'm to set my finances in order for the kids, and I want to make sure, you know, mow the lawn one more time. It has to look good before I kick the bucket. But this idea of Jesus doing what he does in his last hours goes far beyond his own lifetime. See, back at the beginning of time, which we're going to place right here, okay? This is the beginning of time. And whether you believe it was Adam and Eve or some other version of that story, we're not going to unpack that here. There's a lot we could unpack There's this division between God and us, and this division is sin. And sin is something that we could also unpack and spend a lot of time, but this division is set in the beginning after the creation where God tells everything is good. And through this timeline, God chooses specific people. He chooses specific families until we get to this whole nation of Israel who's enslaved by Egypt, by a pharaoh who knows nothing about their God or who they are, but they're supposed to be God's people. And so God rescues them by 10 different plagues. These plagues are awful. They're awful. And the last one specifically, where the Spirit of God comes and attacks the Egyptian firstborns. And yet for the Israelites, the Spirit passes over because they take this blood of a lamb and they place it over their doorposts. Remember this. Then we get a few thousand years of history. People like David, Elijah, Elisha, and all these different Old Testament people are anticipating that the God who wants to make things right from back here is going to somehow bring it about by some sort of messianic king. Messianic king. Potato, potato. And this messianic king was going to come in and restore all things to the way it's supposed to be back here where we're living in some sort of perfect garden, some utopia. And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting and then all of a sudden this young girl and an unknown carpenter from a tiny little podunk village are visited by angels and this whole thing takes a whole turn. That's what we're looking for in this Christmas season, right? And from that, we get into our Mark chapter today. Jesus has grown up. He has 12 disciples who I like to affectionately call the 12 Stooges. And these 12 Stooges and him are going around doing amazing, miraculous things. But they're not going against, or with the world. They're going against the world's prerogative. And we see that in this whole space-time continuum, Jesus is bringing about so many different aspects of the past and also the future. Because on this timeline, we're over here, right? And we get the chance to look back at everything. How blessed we are that we weren't in this time period, not knowing what was to come. No, no, no. We have the vantage point of looking back and saying, wow, what a creative God. To restore all things, to bring about all things in this specific way. So with that in mind, let's open up to Mark 14. We're going to start at verse 12. And unpack what Jesus does here in a much broader sense and understand the concept of joy. On the first day of festival of the unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. We remember on the timeline of the stage that back over here is this event called Passover, where the Spirit of the Lord passes over the Israelites' homes. And they do that because of the blood of the Lamb. And so, historically, this is a transforming moment. And not just a nation, but a people group who are supposed to represent God. Similarly, but not quite as cool, we light up fireworks on the 4th of July because we declared our independence. Similar, but not quite as significant, because God didn't tell us to declare independence. Let's make that clear. We can talk about that later if you want to, okay? <laughs> but the point of it is, is that this was both a holy holiday and a national holiday. And so they'd celebrate this Passover meal. It was meant to be celebrated over eight days, and on one day you would sacrifice the lambs. Josephus, who was a historian of the ancient uh, of the Israelites of that time, I'll get there, lack of sleep messes with your mouth motion sometimes, Josephus said that over 600,000 lambs were sacrificed annually on Passover. 600,000 lambs that could feed over millions of people. And so for Jesus to tell his disciples, hey, there'll be a guy Carrying in some water. When you see him, ask him to get the room ready. But what's interesting culturally is that men never did carry water. Taking out our, our current context, it would be ironic to see a man carrying water, and so that was the marker for the disciples to look for. These two disciples we find in another gospel are John and Peter. Find him, and they ask him, and he takes them there, and everything's ready to go. Which again... Isn't that new? Because if a person coming outside of Jerusalem asked to celebrate the Passover with you, you were bound and obligated by the culture of that day to say, come on in. I mean, can you imagine you're celebrating Christmas and people knocking on your door and say, hey, can I come in and celebrate Christmas with you? And you have to. <laughs> Better get some extra presents all. The Martin family's gonna be knocking at the door. This idea, though, of what Passover is for Jesus' time, is important for us to understand what it truly means. Now, the Passover meal was not your most incredible spread of food, but it was symbolic. It was significant. You would have unleavened bread, because just as those ancient Israelites escaped from Egypt, without being able to let the bread rise, they basically had tasteless, delicious, not delicious at all, crackers with very little seasoning. And so one time a year, they would have this different meal that every child would say, why are we having bread that tastes like this? It tastes like grandma. You know? <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> was that too cross the line? Yeah. Okay, I was cross the line. Tastes like ant. Okay, just kidding. Here's the point of this, is that this, this disgusting cracker would be dipped into herbs that were absolutely bitter. And they would use salt water to even heighten the bitterness. Well, that sounds like a delicious meal, Pastor Scott. Sign me, yeah, no. It was because they were remembering the bitterness of being in slavery. They remembered even using some of the ingredients they used to make bricks, they would then incorporate into the meals to remember the significance of this event. They would use wine because that's what most people drank in that day because water was unpotable. And they would use wine in significant ways as well. Obviously, the blood of the lamb and that Passover lamb they would eat, remembering that that was over those doorposts. See, that takes us back all the way to the beginning of time, trying to make sense that every single sin we have needs to be calculated for, needs to be atoned for, needs to be forgiven, in order to have a relationship with God. And so Jesus getting ready to celebrate this meal is going to reinterpret and reorient the entirety of Jewish history, the entire history of humanity. So that not just everybody this way, but all of us sitting in here and everybody after us gets to find freedom through Him. Passover will be required to be eaten between sundown and midnight in Jerusalem, with millions in the city coming to celebrate is likely there was a considerable crowding the disciples would have to bring the unleavened bread, the wine, the bitter herbs, sauce, and the lamb to this meal. And of course, the wine. So let's pick it back up in verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they asked him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Obviously, we see the shock value here, but also the intimacy that the betrayer has with Jesus himself. And it's interesting that Jesus' foreknowledge does not kick Judas out. But over the next days, each one of his disciples will fail him in huge, significant, eternally written down in Bible ways whether it be Peter, whether it be any number of the 12 who run away at the first sign of danger, we see that the woe pronounced is not just intended mainly for Judas, but for potentially all of humanity. That we are all tempted to run away from Jesus when things get a little rough. But Judas is specifically highlighted in the text just prior to what we opened to. Judas agrees to betray Jesus for a sum of money that was Very trivial. In fact, if you go earlier in the passage, when an unknown woman, according to Mark, bathes Jesus with perfume, the cost of that would be years and years and years of work where Judas just betrays him for the price of a slave. Thomas Cranfield wrote, the fact that God turns the wrath of man into his praise, that what Judas did was somehow necessary does not excuse the wrath of man. Here we see the transition to one of the only passages in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he gave them thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. As I said earlier, the bread was unleavened, more of a cracker substance than what we have in front of us this morning. At Passover, the blessing of bread that preceded the meal itself went like this. Praise be thou, O Lord, Sovereign, the Lord of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. After a blessing, the host then would give out this bread, this unleavened bread, to everyone there to eat it. And here we see that Jesus changes this significantly, saying, this is my body. While the breaking is a fun moment for any pastor because it's so significant. It's so wrenching to see the body broken. The real significance is that after he proclaims it's his body, he passes it out. And he passes it out to Judas. Friends, if you ever think you're not worthy to eat this meal, you have to be a little bit better than Judas Iscariot. And yet... The humility is that every single one of these disciples, none of them are worthy. All of them are outsiders. And it is Jesus who chooses all of them and chooses you. Sitting here today to be on the inside and have him come inside you. Famous biblical scholar Hendrickson says that by the means of the supper here instituted, The church should remember his sacrifice and love him, should reflect on the sacrifice and embrace him by faith, and should look forward in living hope to his glorious return. Communion is loving remembrance, but it is more than just that. Through the Spirit, Jesus is active and he's present in this feast. This is much more than just trivial bread and juice poured out. This is Jesus Christ offering himself for you. Offering himself for those 12. Offering himself for those Israelites. And for Adam and Eve, who made the very first faux pas. And he restores all things, saying you can have intimacy with him because of this in front of us. I love the famous theologian Martin Luther, who believed that when you take the elements He said famously in slamming the table in a debate with another person saying, you chew him with your teeth. You chew him with your teeth. Well, we here at Element 3 Church do not believe we literally are eating flesh and blood. Sorry, cannibals. We do believe that there's something spiritually happening by the work of the Holy Spirit that as you ingest this, it's not just merely a symbol, it is Jesus coming inside and doing the work that only he can do. Verse 23. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I'll not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. During a Passover meal, as a holiday would transition to various differences. In this Passover meal, it was the third cup, the cup that followed the meal itself as we'd be passed around, that they called the cup of salvation. Isn't that cool? That Jesus says, I am this cup of salvation, and it's my blood inside the cup. While you take this idea of a lamb on the doorposts Somehow providing that spirit of the Lord to pass over and go to the Egyptians. It is now Jesus saying, You're taking the blood and putting it inside of you. Drinking Jesus' blood. The Greek verb here is called thanks, it's called a Eucharist, saying, Poured out for you and for many. This idea of a Eucharist that we use in our common church for many of our denominations, we use it as an idea not just of remembrance, but this cup also shows sacrifice. Just as so the covenants were made whole by the blood in the Old Testament, here we see the same in the New Testament by Jesus himself bringing the idea of a new covenant, a new theology, where all are welcome at this table. where well, you don't need to know a bunch of Old Testament rules, but it is the spirit of the living God who works inside of you, and teaches you how to be a child of God. Now, the last line in this passage, when he drinks it in the kingdom of God, is not a new concept. It's called the messianic banquet. Passages in Isaiah 25, in Matthew 8, Luke 22, and even in extra biblical passages like Enoch 72 show that the idea of a Messiah coming and then having a banquet with all of his people is what we can have hope for. We believe that in the elements in front of us here, they're merely an appetizer. That we get to have a meal with Jesus himself someday and see that from the beginning of time all the way to me and all the way for however long this world is in existence for, okay? I just keep walking if you want me to walk off the stage. I mean, we, we may have a world for five, six, seven, 22,000 years. But we have the promise in Jesus Christ in this moment that he will welcome us to a table with all of our friends, maybe a few of our enemies, but all of humanity bound up by his work and by his body and by his blood. See, friends, that is what joy is. True joy is seeing God at work through a bigger plan than we can comprehend. It's not a momentary, ooh, I feel happy. It's not a a prolonged, my team won a national championship of whatever sport I root for. It is seeing God through generation after generation after generation working a plan of salvation. Listen to Mary's song in Luke 1 as she finds out about who she was going to bear. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has great done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Boy, that doesn't sound like anything we'd say in our culture today. Friends, I went through a drive-thru the other day, and I was livid because I got my order wrong twice. I'm not going to wrench in the restaurant. It is a national chain, but I'll still not mention it. And it took 10 minutes to get that food, and I was, I was losing my mind, particularly because one of my kids was just screaming in the back seat because they're so hungry and I couldn't feed them a cheeseburger because they're allergic to dairy, okay? I'm losing my mind over a cheeseburger that should have been a hamburger. And ironically, after asking, they remade it into a cheeseburger, Okay. The point of this is, is that I rarely think about who my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will be, nor do I really care to think too much about how my great-great-great-grandparents must think about how I'm living today. That's a hard thing about our society. We're pursuit of happiness when we should be pursuing joy. Seeing only for the moment is not seeing Christ right before you working in ways that is impacting your day-to-day but also your lifetime and in the lifetimes of people who work around you. But you shouldn't feel too bad about that because no one could really see who Jesus was either. Jesus seemed to be some sort of odd figure, some sort of weird prophet who definitely did a lot of miracles but really didn't understand what the people truly needed. They got it. He didn't. When you can see beyond yourself, you see joy. I want to highlight quickly four different times I've seen joy in my life. The first one was my first eldest daughter, Evelyn. Now, this is me pre-eating too much as, as a father, okay? I look fit. I look good. My wife always looks good. Evelyn was born nine weeks after we started the adoption process. My plan was to go on and get a PhD in theology, and I'll be a teacher at seminary level. And God had another plan. Because after she was born, we agreed that I would go back and start working again. My wife would stay home with Evelyn. And I looked at my schedule. I'm like, I can't do a full time job and go to seminary. What am I going to do, God? And I saw the joy in her and reoriented my priorities into what God was calling us to be. You're to be a father. Just two years later, our adoption agency called and said, there are not adoptive parents for African-American children in the city of Cincinnati. Would you put an application in? The moment we put our application in, actually before our application came in, which I think is probably illegal, but don't tell anybody. They showed our unfinished application to a birth mom who had a child at 27 weeks. That's James. You would never know that now because he's almost as big as me. That kid was two pounds, three ounces. I could take my wedding ring and slide it up to his shoulder. I won't show you those pictures. It was just a, a, I mean, just joy to meet him, to have him have my name. I'm James Scott Martin Jr. And to give him my name, to see the, the blessing of being a James Martin go from his name to hopefully a fourth and a fifth and however many we get. It's joy to being done with adoptions, and our family was complete. And I was back and working in church work in Lincoln, Nebraska, and my wife had this sense of we need to go into foster care. And obviously, God will give us a four- and a five-year-old, so I built bunk beds because we were planning ahead. God was going to somehow give us this people to watch over. We're just going to bless some kids, and it's going to be a great thing for them and for us. And after we got licensed, and we're the only people in the class of 40 people saying we don't want an infant, Guess who came to our house? Little Ezekiel. That's 12 days of him being alive in our household. He came right out of the oven in foster care. We adopted him on his first birthday a year later. And man, he is so cute there, and his cheeks still haven't shrunk very much. I love his cheeks. And then, surprisingly, just a year and a half later, my wife was looking at the local newspaper and saw that a girl had been born who's Zeke's bio sister. And so we reached out to our adoption agency who helped with foster care. And Lillian came to us. She wasn't right out of the oven, but dang, she's cute. I've seen joy four times, not because of the way in which God has blessed me, but because it's a blessing to have three different families of birth dads and birth moms to see their testimonies transformed, to see our testimonies transformed in ways that are otherworldly. This, friends, is joy. Where is there joy in your life? Where is there joy in your life? Where do you need to see joy this Christmas? Friends, I think Element 3 Church is a church of joy. And I see coming in in this Phase of its existence that there have been times of sorrow and trouble and hardship there have been times of excitement and growth of people doing all sorts of amazing things in ministry and we still are but i want to see that element three church embraces and embodies joy in this christmas season as we head into christmas eve that we would see Jesus being known and be found, we would have diversity of all types of every single person in every corner of this church, that sacrificial love would mark our mentality towards one another, and that humble worship would mark our lives. We can't see two years or 20 years or 200 years of hardship, 2,000 years of being wrapped up without an answer to the problem of sin, as some sort of joyless enterprise. No, we need to see joy because joy goes beyond us. And when you embrace that joy, it transforms your entire thinking the way you interact with others. May our joy not be rooted in smiling, but in seeing the will of God unite us, move us, and define us for the coming generations of the church. May you find joy this Christmas. And may we find joy... In the meal we're about to share. As we just went through in the text, this is not just a meal. It is a appetizer for the coming feast, and yet it is also Jesus here with us and about to be inside of us. We don't ask you to be a member or an owner of this church or of any church, but just commit yourself to Jesus and to know he's your Lord and Savior, and you're welcome at this table. All are welcome. In the moment, the worship team will be playing an amazing Advent hymn. And you feel, feel free to sing along, of course, but we invite you to come up to receive an element. On each tray, there are gluten-free options that are more of the cracker, and there are the gluten-full, which are more of the full loaf of bread, which you'd look at. So make sure we get that distinction. After you receive the elements, find your seat and hold the elements so we can take them all together as we close our service. With that, let's say a prayer of blessing over the elements we have before us. Heavenly Father, We thank you for those worshiping here, those worshiping online as they gather this bread. Whatever substance it is, it's bread, it's your body. And we take this blood, whatever drink it is, that it is your blood of the new covenant. And may these infuse in us your real presence, God, your sacrificial love. And for the ability to say that you ransomed our lives for yours on a cross, There was a defining moment in the whole history of humanity. And Lord, let us embrace that with joy. Joy. Unrivaled, unbridled joy that seeps from every pore, that confuses our life with purpose and meaning. May that joy run through us this Christmas before our entire testimonies. Lord, help us to have that mindset to be wrapped up in your hands and in your love. And may we find joy. Here in these elements before us bless them and bless all the hands which take them amen